Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Joe Paquette, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Yeah, thank you, man. Great to be here. Yeah. Really great to be here. It's yeah. my pleasure. So I discovered you probably six or eight months ago. And when I saw your stuff on Instagram, I, I, I saved almost every single one of your paintings on your Instagram account into my landscape wow. folder. I was blown away. Wow, that, like, that means a lot, man. I, I can tell you without, um, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, without uh, um, an uh, obligatory compliment to you, uh, I've known of your work for a long time. Oh, thank you. And, and uh, you know, the uh, portrait painting uh, is such a, um, some things speak to you and some things don't. Some, thing are some things are pictures and some things do something else. Right, right. And uh, your, your paintings have always done that for me. Oh, thanks. So I'm, I'm just happy to be able to tell you that. Oh, and man, to, I appreciate that. Know, yeah, I mean it. Well, I, uh, I built a van uh, about two or three years ago, I bought a van so that I could go out and do landscape painting because, because I've got some health issues, which make it difficult for me to be out by myself. And mm -hmm. so I built this van, which is basically a camper without a bed. So it's got all the comforts okay. of home. Anyway, so that's why I started searching for landscape painters. And then I discovered you and I'm just like mind blown. So I am really excited to pick your brain and, uh, kind of figure out how you think <laughs> and not well, just for uh, me, you know but what? for everyone I, I, else. I, yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm just assuming based on your work that you're going to have some really good questions. Well, I hope so. There's, I hope so. Nothing more enjoyable than talking to, uh, uh, talking to a fellow artist, you know, with a, with a good mind. And, yeah. It's um, a blast. Cause this is, this is spirit and it's intellect. Yeah. No you know? kidding. And the intellect, the intellect part of it is I think equally important. Mm -hmm. you know, although Corot did say be guided by feeling alone. And I think I, 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 I would say I'd be led by feeling alone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so before we get too much into your art, I'm curious about your space behind you. I saw a brick wall to the side and I'm, uh, I'm going to assume that's a North window. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. 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 Hang on. Let me see if I can get you yeah this way sorry it's in reverse yeah is this yeah a that's a big big north window that's uh uh you know clo uh, close the curtain because the light is just way too much light in here right now from a re reflection off a building across the way so uh yeah so that's uh, i'm in a very old building 100 and some year old warehouse okay and it's uh something of a giant tinker toy it's just a conquer a, a brick box with giant uh a, a 24 by 24 inch posts you know i guess probably old growth spruce or something with giant iron fittings on them and everything is just fitted together like that it's just giant beams and brick and uh wow. you know old oak old oak floor that 
gives when you walk on it, which is kind of nice, especially if you're going back and forth in front of the easel. So mm -hmm. now, did you choose a building like that to be inspired by, or was it just something that well, came? You know what? I, I think a, a space is really important, and I've met many artists who uh, do beautiful work, but they're not. They, they don't. The aesthetics don't mean as much to them. The aesthetics mean a lot to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I once, uh, years ago, a dear friend uh, told me a story about uh, losing her mom, and um, she was very close with her mom, and mom came to her in a dream and the, the next night and said to her, you know, Lord, I'm okay, everything's good, don't worry about me, you know, don't grieve, but this you must remember, you must always remember that everything matters, everything matters. And so I, I, I thought so much about that. And, and, you know, there's that old phrase, watch your thoughts, your thoughts become words, your words become your actions and your actions become your character. But likewise, I think with the art, for me, uh, the aesthetics of a space are really important. Mm -hmm. And if I have a choice, then I'm gonna have a really beautiful space. It's kind of like you look at a Stradivarius and it's such a beautiful thing unto itself. Yeah. And you say, you know, that to, to be able to make something beautiful with beautiful things, there's mm -hmm. something to that for me. So the palette table behind me is a probably a 150 year old. I mean, there's antique people out there that are going to cringe when they hear this, you know, uh, you know, drop leaf, uh, uh, you know, burl maple table uh, that I've turned into my palette. And the top is just like glass and it's beautiful to paint on and. I've got a, a beautiful trundle easel that, that, that I, I, I like the proportions of things. I was a designer uh, years ago. I went to the School of Visual Arts. We'll probably get into more of that later. But uh, I studied design and illustration. And um, so the proportion, the scale of things, and then the, uh, the poetics of space is, I guess, the phrase I would use. Now, mm -hmm. you can work like I, I, it's a running joke with my students, like the Soltech easel. I'm sorry if the designer of that is out there and hears this, but <laughs> I just I can't I can't even look at it without getting an aesthetic rash because it's like a little dissection table. There's no uh, warmth to it. <laughs> so I, you yeah. know, so I, I work with mahogany palettes and I work and it's not being old school. It's being working with things that are really beautiful. Mm -hmm. surfaces the on work on a beautiful surface with great paint and good brushes and all of those things so my space is incredibly important if i yeah. have a choice which i do at this point in my life you know yeah. outdoors we don't have a choice outdoors you know, Mother Nature puts what she does on your plate and you eat it whether you like it or not right yeah no <laughs> you joke. get what you get you know and yeah. that's okay yeah you, know, you don't have control yeah, although Mother Nature is awfully beautiful most of the time. Well, you know what? It's never out of harmony, is it? No. No matter how intense an effect or anything else, one of the most beautiful things about nature is the integration mm -hmm. uh, of form and color and value and the transitions within those things that tie everything together in this absolutely beautiful harmony. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you talk about this sense of aesthetics and your space and I'm assuming everything around you because my students uh, who are new to the art world often buy into the stereotypes of artists. You know, artists yeah. are slobs, artists are, well, ah, very, yeah. well, let's stick with slobs. I'm not going to, I'm not <laughs> going to feed all the other stereotypes right now, but. Um, well, we know what they all yeah, are. Yeah, we know, you know what they are. But I, 
I always tell them, I'm like, you know, most great realists that I've met are gent, not all, but most are neat. They have a beautiful space. They, everything around them seems beautiful. They seem to have, they seem to uh, crave aesthetics everywhere they go. And so that stereotype, mm. it doesn't seem to apply, yeah. at least, at least that's been my experience. Now there are a few exceptions, which I wouldn't name, but most realists that I know seem to have that, share that sentiment of needing beauty around them. Um, I certainly do. Yeah, I just think that it's a beauty, beauty and, and, and a lack of chaos. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I think of Francis Bacon's studio oh, or Lucian Freud's studio, you know, the thing is that that I, I mean, I, I'm just I, if I was painting in there, I'd just be waiting for the rat to dash out from under that oh, pile of paint rags. I know. And uh, so it's, and, and when people see pictures of my studio, like on Instagram, because I'll take these beautiful shots at the end of the day, I'll go to leave. And the light is just coming in at an angle on the back wall. And it just, the shapes are beautiful and the colors. And I'm like, oh, I got to take a picture of this. Yeah. And they go, oh, you're too neat. You're too neat. Well, the, 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 the outward um, order balances my inner chaos. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I like I, that. I think, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I think really, I mean, the way my mind works has always been unusual i guess for lack of a any other word and and uh, the way i look at the world and all that kind of stuff you know i've been an inveterate daydreamer my whole life uh mm -hmm. and and the the funny thing is now i get paid for everything i got in trouble for as a kid isn't that funny how that works <laughs> i i would be unemployed if i yeah. if i couldn't work for myself i'd be unemployed when i took the act's I got through the math and science section because I'm relatively interested in those two subjects. But then when I got into the reading section, I, I saw someone playing soccer outside and an hour and a half later, the bell went off and I realized I was daydreaming for an hour and a half during the ACTs. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> yeah, man. It's that's, that was my life in school. So yeah, I think we wow. artists can relate. I think that's a stereotype that is pretty accurate for, for most of us. Um, yeah. so my guess is you're in New Jersey or New York based on your accent. No, I'm in, I am in St. Paul, but, okay. but New Jersey is in me. Okay. Yeah, you're from New that's... Jersey. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, you could take the boy out of Jersey, but can't take Jersey out of the boy, you know? <laughs> okay. Well, tell me a little bit about your past. Like how did you end up becoming a full-time painter? Uh, I'll try to make it quick. Uh, I was fortunate. I had two parents that, uh, we're super hardworking uh, people. My mom was a homemaker, but was always creative, uh, making clothes for us and all that kind of stuff. You know, cooked three meals a day, you know, from scratch. And my dad worked on the railroad and um, um, he was a giant fellow, six foot, six inches mm. tall. And, and uh, he was started out as a young man as a dock builder, an iron worker, a mason, a carpenter. And then... Uh, and uh and then ended up working his way up with five kids and uh but my mom didn't drive and because of that i had a i think a little bit more unusual upbringing than some people uh because i basically you know i i've said before uh, only half jokingly i was like a veal i was fed and watered and put in the backyard you know to just wander around mm -hmm. and try not try not to get into trouble so uh spent a lot of time just on my bike and, and, and 
you know, and when I was, you know, five or six, I started drawing and, and, uh, you know, I think if we have proclivities perhaps for some things, but, you know, it's just following it and getting some uh, genuine reinforcement. Mm-hmm. But I also came from a family that didn't, we, it was very tough. Let me put it this way. My mother grew up on a farm in Germany during World War II, okay? Plowed with oxen as a child. Wow. My mother, not my grandmother, okay? What? My mom. <laughs> And so, and I, and you know, she didn't drive. And, and so you weren't being patted on the back constantly or drawing a breath, you know, it wasn't right. like that. Right. We were loved. We were uh, taken care of. We had plenty to eat. We were safe, all that good stuff. Uh, but it wasn't constant. Oh my God, you're amazing. Let me give you a trophy because it's Monday. And yeah. uh, <laughs> so... Uh, but because of that, I drew and I drew and I drew and ended up drawing in high school, having a great high school art teacher and a, my brother, Jim, who was a graphic designer and an art director. And he said, Joe, you really should go to art school because I was considering uh, going to Syracuse University because I was a real intense athlete as a young guy. I played three sports for four years and and uh, they had a really good football program and, um, and an, a good art program. So I thought maybe because I loved playing the sports that maybe I'd combine the two. And I was talked out of it by uh, an, an athletic director of all things, Joe Williams. Hmm. Um, he said, Joe, you'll ruin your body. Go to a good art school. And I'm like, OK. Wow. And uh, I ended up uh, applying to the School of Visual Arts in New York, uh, which was just rocking at the time. I mean, Oh, man, my teachers were the most amazing illustrators and graphic designers in Manhattan. You're kidding. You know, I mean, I had Jim McMullen as a uh, drawing teacher for two years. And and uh, I'm trying to think Bob Giusti and um, Wendell Miner. And I mean, these people are book designers and illustrators and and great photographers, great graphic designers. And what year uh, was this? This was uh, 19. Let's see. Eighty. Uh, 85 is when I got in, So the late key, 84. So the key must have been that you went into commercial art, because if you had gone into the fine arts, you probably would have ended up with a more of a modern art approach. You know, it's entirely possible, except that while I was in school, I fell in love with the old illustrators, Howard Pyle yeah. and N.C. Wyatt. And I used to go down to Brandywine uh, to the museum. Uh, actually met Andrew Wyatt oddly one day uh all by himself in the gallery wow. he was just there with there with my painting mentor and one other uh, student and went up and talked to him and had this amazing conversation with him so I, I was just fascinated by the wyatts and the illustration of the time because i was studying illustration but most of the illustration at sva was um you were expected to have a style yeah and how can you have a style unless you manufacture one you can't organically have one at that age. And so what you see is all these people doing exactly what's going on in the fine art world today. They cobble together a look by adopting the mannerisms of other people. Mm-hmm. And so they say, you know, you can tell if you look at somebody's paintings, if they, you know, uh, if they studied with Scott Christensen or Albert Hendel or, or, or David LaFell. And there's nothing wrong with some of that. But if the students are adopting the mannerisms instead of the principles that govern the mannerisms, that's where the problem lay. 
Yeah. And uh, at School of Visual Arts, I had such an issue with that. And I remember for my senior year, I did two large charcoal drawings for my final uh, project, you know, like a, a la N.C. Wyeth, Howard Pyle, for a short story to build a fire. And I didn't even get a second look from the advisors or anything. And they did a big compendium of the students' work. And I just, you know what it is? Honestly, Jeff, I don't think I've ever fit uh, uh, I fit somebody else's idea of what I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so, uh, during that time I did fall in love with figure drawing because Jim McMullen taught an amazing drawing class. John foot was this great teacher, totally inspiring. And, and you have to understand I was, I was that veal. I mean, I basically, I never went anywhere. I never was on a plane. I, I, I'd never been into Manhattan, even though I lived 20 minutes away. Yeah. I mean, in, in New Jersey, cause my dad was working all the time. Yeah. And so, uh, so John Foote opened the world to me, but figure drawing, man, that was it. I'm like, I want to become a great draftsman. And then I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, to the print and drawing room with uh, three friends of mine. And my buddy who put it all together said, uh, who do you want to look at? I said, are you kidding? You know, and I, I want to look at uh, I, 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 Ang or Ong, however you want to say it, Angre. Yeah, Degas, uh, on and on and on. Michelangelo, of course. And the appointed day came and we ended up there. They gave us uh, uh, cotton gloves and a magnifying glass. And now imagine this is 1983. Okay, Mm -hmm. the guy that's bringing out these boxes with the original drawing sees how reverential we are. And he says, uh, if you want to photograph them, you can. But I have to lift the acetate. You can't touch it. Okay. We said, great. Yeah. So I photographed all of these things. And after a while, he was like, you know what? Just do it yourself. Be careful. Really? What an opportunity. All right. So, but this is where, this is where, this is the life changing stuff, right? So uh, he brings out Michelangelo's study for the Libyan civil. Mm -hmm. Most famous drawing in the history of art. Red chalk nude. You got to be kidding. I literally had a physical spiritual reaction to it and without any exaggeration i I mean and that's what i have come to realize is the difference between looking at art and witnessing art you know when you witness art it's something that's a it's literally a full experience mind body spirit you it's overwhelming and then when i looked at the drawing not only was it perfect in every way and freely executed everything rhythmically connected and hierarchical But I felt something before I saw something. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there was so much more to be had potentially. Mm. And the only other times that happened to me were with uh, Michelangelo's Finnish slaves Mm -hmm. in Florence and seeing um, Isaac Levitan's paintings. Mm. Saw two of his paintings and that really changed my life too, for exactly the same reasons. It was about sensitivity not technique, not a hook. You know, so many people, there's all these videos out there now, as you, I'm sure, all too well aware of. That, you know, everybody retires from one job and they're, they're going to be an artist. That's it. Yeah. You're an artist. You're going to market yourself. You're going to be in a gallery. You're going to be this. You're going to be that. And, and so there's nothing, there's no organic timeline anymore for study. And the room for wonder. Mm-hmm. Wonder, wonder takes time. 
and, 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 and wonder and curiosity and exploration take time. But many people are trying to supplant that by uh, adopting other people's way of seeing or doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, highly unfortunate, I guess I'd say. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why, like I said, when I saw your work uh, all those years ago with no BS, I mean, I'm telling you the God's honest truth. When I saw it, I'm like, this guy's doing something. Oh, I really these appreciate are, that. These, that means these, a lot. These are cool. These are powerful. They're, they're, they're different. Now, I don't paint portraits regularly. I spend a year and a half painting portrait every week. I, and once in a while, I'll do a portrait head of somebody that matters to me. Mm-hmm. I'll do a study because that's everything to me is about connection. Yeah. Because the rest is just picture making. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're not connected to something, how you how do you expect to go deep? You know, it's impossible to go deep without connection. You can craft something well. There's certainly a lot of really talented people out there right now. Um, the studio schools are, are churning out, you know, groups of young people every year that are highly skilled, you know. But in, in the end, uh, I think there's this very fine uh, challenge, at least that I've experienced, and that's that I don't want to try to paint a prior aesthetic. You know, I respect Corot highly. I respect Levitan highly, but they were of their time, you know, and mm-hmm. I want to make sure that if I can adopt the great things from them, like Corot said, be guided by feeling alone. He also said when painting outdoors, it should be like a child blowing up a balloon with every breath. It affects the whole thing. I mean, he's all these beautiful little nuanced ways, the things that I can glean from that. And with Levitan, it was, oh, my God, there's, there's no exaggeration here. Mm-hmm. It's so substantive and it's so sensitively observed that the level of sensitivity is what brought him to where he was. Not technique. Mm-hmm. Not to, technique means nothing if it's not served by spirit, in my mind. And there are plenty of people that can render beautifully out there. And I, I don't mean it pejoratively, but rendering to me is just part of something. Yeah. If the hand is not driven by the abject desire to say something, which is an internal motivation, as opposed to us being externally motivated, you know, fame, fortune, you know, being noticed, getting likes, doing all these things, that affects the choices that we make. Mm-hmm. But I think to to wander and to wonder and to allow the world in uh, takes time. And I've actually had uh, students that are older and they go, well, I don't have time. Yeah. I say, BS, BS, I'm sorry, you have time. There's there's a time, there's, there's it, it's just that, you know, you want a certain result right now, right? And, and if you think you're going to get that by, adopting the mannerisms of other people, you know, and I, I, I've called those folks workshop Frankensteins pejoratively, uh, where they, <laughs> you know, they got the head, the head of one artist and the arms of somebody yeah. else. And they're all sewed together or sewn together. Uh, and um, in this kind of uh, unfortunate amalgam of other people's handwriting. And um, so, you know, for, for me, I just, when somebody says, what are you doing? I, I, I can say honestly, I mean, very honestly, even to you know some of my students that I've had for a very long time, 
Uh, they'll say, what are you working on? I say, I'm studying. And they're like, no, really, what are you doing? I said, really, I'm studying. Yeah. Because at this point, and I'm going to be 60 this year, study is all that matters. The study and the connection, because the more, uh, I mean, after all these years of painting outdoors, I'm really pleasantly surprised at I'm seeing things I've never seen before. Isn't that something after all those years? Because uh, I have the same yeah. experience at my easel where I've learned something that I'm like, oh, I wish I knew that 20 years ago. How am I still? And it's not even things that are difficult to to execute. It's just a different way of using a medium or something or a different way you know of observing the model. Me, it's, well, it's also about letting go, mm -hmm. right? I mean, what, what's so attractive to, to, to uh, most people when they look at an abstract expressionist painting? I think the abandon is terribly exciting, mm -hmm. being able to let go. And I think a, most realists would tell you that they'd feel the same way. If they could let fire and still have the level of control that they want in a painting, right? And some people have been able to do it highly effectively, you know, uh, Zorn. Yeah. Uh, Dorn and, and uh, you know, of course, Soroya, good heavens, and Sargent. And, but uh, uh, false or uh, cheeky um, brevity in a painting loses me. Somebody's being technique-y or clever. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, kind of self-congratulatory. And um, I think one of, the, one of the gifts that come with being a, an outdoor painter for so many years and painting mostly from life is, is humility. You know, it really is hard to be, you know, they always say in, the, in, in war that you rarely see an atheist in a foxhole. Yeah. Well, you don't see a whole lot of egotists that paint outdoors on a regular basis. Most of the ones that I've met, the, the finer artists that are out there, they really do have a degree of humility to temper, you know, the hubris that it takes just to face a blank canvas and think you have something to bring to the world. Well, you know what I've noticed? I think that I haven't spent enough time outdoors to make that, to, to make that observation, but what I've noticed is just great painters tend to be very humble. And I've, I've concluded that's because you can't be great without realizing how bad you are and constantly striving to be better. Yeah, I think being uh, understanding that we're limited yeah. is important. And I think that, um, uh, you know, no offense to all the people that do nothing but studio work out there, but I've found a whole lot more people that work in the studio that have ego issues than ones that work outdoors. Oh, interesting. And that's be because you control everything. Yeah. Yeah. Outdoors, you control nothing but how you react to not having control. Yeah, it's brutal. I've found that as I've yeah. tried to figure it out being outside. Yeah, especially, like I said, if you're used to, you know, I once uh, was at a show many years ago, and this artist came up to me, and he was pretty popular in the gallery, and he said, uh, looked at my paintings, he said, huh, plein air? I said, yeah. He goes, not me. Never more than 10 feet from my coffee pot and stereo. And he did these really tightly photographically rendered little landscapes yeah. that were, you know, they were, they were nice, you know. Um, but I often wonder if we didn't have the photograph to look at how differently we would actually perceive. Because I think we have been informed uh, subconsciously by photography 
and by the photographic image because binocular vision we have two eyes it's completely different you know mm -hmm. the optics of paint bar learning to paint optically which is something that i study i work on a lot myself you know if i stare in one area in the painting and everything loses information and edges and uh, as as i spiral out from that point how much am i perceiving in my peripheral vision not when I jump my eye from place to place to place to place, you know, and that's where, you know, so much of the subjective choice making comes in that I think is what makes something art as opposed to a rendering, right? Every time you, Jeff Rehine makes a choice that's subjective, it's more of a Jeffrey Hine painting than it is uh, an image, a photograph. Right. And I think that's the genius of Hopper, right? Mm -hmm. Hopper is the, his subjective choice making is extraordinary. His edit and distillation, how he saw nature and how he edited and selected. And that's why people could copy a hopper but never paint one. Because mm. those were all subjective choices. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, there's there's two sides of the coin. I mean, I think if you you look at the 20th century, it makes sense that art went the way it did, right? Because uh, if you look at uh, some of the naturalist painters, from the, I'm sure you're well aware of their work from late oh, 19th course. century, uh, they started uh, incorporating photography into their work, right? And they would have these big glass houses outside in France, and they'd photograph the figure under north light, and then they would paint a landscape on a gray day and incorporate the two. Mm -hmm. uh, Ridgeway Knight, Daniel Ridgeway Knight, famous painting, Hailing the Ferry, mm -hmm. was done that way. And a lot of people, and but what happened is when they started incorporating photography, I think unfortunately being more correct didn't make the paintings better or being more, quote, real. Uh, and I think that's why the pendulum had to swing so wildly the other way. I think it was a perfectly natural reaction because where do you go from there? And if you look at the salon paintings from the 1870s right up until 1900, you were basically looking at, uh, the forerunner of cinema and Hollywood. The paintings were getting larger, more violent, more sexual or salacious. And it was all about getting somebody's attention in that room. Mm -hmm. Right? And then somebody comes along like Bastien Lepage. God bless Bastien Lepage. What an amazing character. Right? Sickly dude, lived in this little village painted the people that he knew in a, in a humble, genuine way, and he blew everybody away because he wasn't painting. It, it wasn't about cinema. It was about him connecting to something that he knew. It was some humble honesty, all right, packaged in beautiful observation. So he paints a goose girl, and what happens? All these people go out and start painting goose girls because he painted a goose girl. They missed the whole damn point. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> It's not about yeah. the goose girl. It's about painting what's, what means something to you. So that's why I think the, the salon, if you look at it, it is, it's just like movies, right? Everything got, like I said, the paintings got more giant, more violent. You know, it was all this action all the time. And, uh, and, and you know, it, modernism needed to occur. And I think, you know, as a, as a representational painter, understanding what happened is important without being so reactionary about it. Mm -hmm. I've got friends that are militant about everything. Oh, I hate this. I hate this. And this is all crap. And this is the only time that anything was ever good. Look, I think you can learn from all times. You know, the only difference, the only thing caveat that I would add is that 
uh, with the 20th century, most of the work is idea based or ideative. Yeah. People aren't necessarily telling you what they love. They're telling you what they think. Mm -hmm. I would rather hear what you love. I agree. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's my main issue with it. If everything is about an idea, because if you go to Florence, Italy, and you go to the PT Palace, uh, I don't know if you've ever been, but there's a, there's a group of painters there called the Macchiaioli, yeah. uh, which Macchia means spot in Italian. It's a group of p outdoor painters that were doing amazing work, jaw-dropping hmm. from, you know, 1850 through the 1880s. And their work was all different, but beautifully drawn, stylistically different, but based in, in observation. So their work, when you look at their work uh, as a group, it was really stunning that they weren't all copying each other, right? There wasn't some, uh, you know, homogenous quality to it at all. But when Cezanne hit, you can see it in the museum, all the work changed, all the Italian work, everything, the flat pattern, you know, uh, spot, big flat color spots, people subjected their vision to Cezanne. Mm-hmm because they felt it was the only way to be relevant. And uh, same thing happened with, uh, in, in a contemporary sense with George Bellows. I give a little talk on Bellows to my students and it's a really important one because it's about the difference between being of your own mind and then subjecting uh, yourself, usually filtered by our own fear about not being relevant. He, he wanted to be, when modernism came in, uh, the Armory show in 1913 in Manhattan, he said, I need to get more modern color into my work. So if you know early Bellows, those, those, those snow scenes and stuff, they're stunning, but mm -hmm. they're all tonal. Right. He's working with a very close value range with a limited palette, and he's, and he's got that most gorgeous balance of risk and care in his work because he drew beautifully. Very fiery, you know. So what happened is he wanted more modern color. So he started using more chromatic color in his paintings. His drawing within two or three years slipped from character to caricature. Mm. So these little changes happened. And then you see this huge shift in his work. You know, he did this portrait, you probably know it, Patty Flanagan. It's this I'm tough little sure. Irish street, street kid. If you don't find it. Okay. As a portrait painter, you're going to look at it. And I'm go, sure oh. I've seen it. I'm terrible. Oh, it's yeah. so amazing. But, but it had all that character and it had that balance of risk and care and that, that character, the importance of character versus caricature. And that's such a fine line, right? Yeah. Take your foot off the gas just a little bit and the shapes start to look the same. Right. Just a little more general. And, and what happened is in his quest to be modern, he basically gave up, I think, so many of the things that made his work so heartfelt and powerful. Hmm. Yeah. Man, this is good stuff. So, you know, a couple thoughts I had. One is when you were talking about this sense of originality and, and where you, you've seen so many students kind of try and mimic other artists and mm -hmm. look for their style. Have you noticed in your years of teaching that whether or not students sort of come with their own mannerisms innately or have, oh, have oh, that's you... a very great question, Jeff. Yeah. I've been teaching a long time I and mean, yeah. 26 years. 
lot of people, uh, thousands, literally between classes and workshops. And I had taught regular classes, so I trained a lot of people yeah. as well. Right. It wasn't, you know, just a one, you know, weekly visit kind of thing. But um, yes, I think we could, well, uh, let me put it this way. I think we come in with proclivities. Yeah. Right. And I have a, a pyramid of training that I designed uh, for um, my students to help diagnose their skill sets, where they're at. Mm hmm. And so that we can balance their skill set so they can stay in alignment as they move up, right? And so basically the, 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 the chart I designed is like a pyramid. At the top of it is a circle, which would be mastery, which, you know, whatever you refer to as mastery or think of as mastery. But usually when I think of mastery, I think of somebody making a mark. And in that single mark is drawing and color and value and shape and edges and composition and form. Their, their skill sets are so finely aligned that it's like a stack of pennies sitting on top of each other. Mm -hmm. But what I do is I have everybody chart themselves, right? So here's drawing down here at the base of the pyramid, right? And then, you know, here's mastery. So between beginner and mastery, plot a point, where are you? And then do it for color and value and for color as value, you know, for form, for composition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Most people, when they chart themselves, they get this EKG, right? Yeah. And the, the, the great uh, unfortunate thing about it is uh, so often I think people inadvertently, not consciously, but inadvertently identify themselves by their weaknesses and not their strengths. And, and, and illustrated by the fact that somebody says, oh, I'm an impressionist because they never decided to learn to draw. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or I'm a colorist. In other words, it becomes a default point. So all I, and that's fine, do what you want to do. But what I say to the people that I work with and the people that I do mentoring with, because I mentor people across the US and in Europe and all over the place, uh, I say, look, just if you could do it, wouldn't it be great to not have anything to apologize for? How about that? Mm -hmm. You know, instead of, you know, uh, having, you know, to be out there and I, and believe me, because I've dealt, I've, I've had a lot of mentoring students now and I, I started mentoring before it was cool back in 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, because I taught workshops all over and people would go, boy, I wish I could have the opportunity that your regular students have had. And I said, well, all right, let's just try this and see how it goes. And, you know, even I was rather dubious about it at the beginning, except that it worked out really well. And the results for the people that were willing to do the work, mm -hmm. right, and do what was in their own best interest did really well and, and made, you know, really solid strides with their yeah. work. But, but, you know, that skills assessment, you know, every once in a while, I'll get a mentoring student who is frankly deluded, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and there's not much I can do with that. Yeah. Because I always say, look, if we're not, uh, if we're not, the, the whole key to growth is honesty in life and in art, right? So if you want to get better as an artist, then look at the things that you can be better at. And I'm this constant proponent of constant action. I'll go, you know what? That, that you know, if I, I'm taking my foot off the gas a little bit on that shape, shame on me. Because that shape is different than the one next to it. And I, you know, I put a lot of care, uh, a lot of care into the drawing in my paintings. And, and because I think how well I draw that shape shows how much I respect the difference in that thing than the difference of the thing next to it. Yeah. So, so 
the, the idea is to say everything is different. If everything is different, then what is different about it? And sometimes that level of nuance is extraordinarily minute. You know, it's the tiniest difference in angle or shape. What's the difference in the character between that tree and the bush next to it? Mm-hmm. What is the shadow? The, what is the character along the edge of the shadow shape? Tell me about the character of that object. And how different is that? And frankly, if somebody was looking at this painting just for fun, would they be able to know that I painted a tomato plant, even though I suggested it at that size? Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool to me mm-hmm. because that's one way to take uh, the, necess- the necessity of subject away from painting. Yeah. Because I think the more deeply you observe, the more you find beauty in the commonplace. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I'm so drawn to with your work. I mean, look at the painting right behind you. This is not something that your average painter might have chosen. No, I mean, it, it's no. like it's the, the average painter might have usually goes for the standard, a river running from the front to the back. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's usually a babbling brook or something, right? Well, you know and what I, it is? It's, it's not the obvious beauty. There's nothing wrong with obvious beauty. No. It's grand, right? It's just that it's obvious. And, and, and there's and so I much think, of it. Yeah, and that's why I say I think it's even harder for portrait and figurative painters to find something unique. Right. You know, because we're all used to looking at human beings. So if you're, you're not going deeper, you know, what are you left with? You're left with technique, right? You, start, you come up with a technique that's a little different or something. You know, yeah. odd nerdrum, right? And then you can watch how there are other, you know, contemporary portrait painters that I've followed that I like their work a lot, figurative painters. But, you know, it, and what happens is I find that in lieu of sensitivity, people will often go to subject or paint manipulation. Mm. If the more sensitive you are, like the sensitivity is what drives my brush, not a concept. Right. If I'm painting that behind me, that painting, there's a, a limestone cliff with a half-hewn cave in there. And the color of that limestone was something I've never painted before. I'm like, how do I paint that so it feels like limestone? And then how is that different than all of those old retaining walls? The first ones are probably 1880. The latter ones came in in 1950 and then 19. Like, what is it about the character of each thing that's completely different? And how do I make a mark that expresses that? Mm. So it's not brushwork by itself, you know, and every once in a while, especially in a workshop, I'll get somebody who studied with everybody, you know, and they'll tell you, <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. I studied with Albert and I studied with David and I studied it's always first names, you know, right, right. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm like, that's all fine. But, you know, I'll know exactly what, you know, after the first hour, you put your brush to the canvas. Okay. And, you know, and they'll say, somebody will say, talk to me about brushwork. And I say, no, I absolutely will not. Specious brushwork bores the shit out of me, Jeff. No, I'm so glad you said that because that's one of the things I want to talk about. Yeah, it just, you know what it is? It's self-congratulatory. I always think of of, uh, Errol Flynn jumping on the table with his sword. Welcome to Sherwood, you know? Right, right. Look how clever this mark is. No, how about, look how well this mark communicates the tiny difference between this versus the thing next um yeah do do that this this to me this might be the reason why i saved all no well it's not the only reason by far but it is one of the reasons i saved so many of your paintings 
because I looked at yours and I've looked at so many landscape painters as I've, um, you know, tried to embark on this new journey myself. And many times um, you'll see painters that have this certain little flick or twist of the wrist everywhere, right? Yes. And, um, and I'm not saying that that's wrong, um, but what I appreciate about yours is that, the, is that they're uniquely you without having some little trick or contrived little brushstroke, right? Affect. Yeah, yeah, it's affect. It's, yeah. You know, it's it's. Uh, I always think of Monet, and you know, I'm sure I'll get struck by lightning by the by the plein air painting gods out there in the world. But uh, you know, early on, Monet had his kettle drum stroke. I call it this big square mark. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. What happens when you hear that? Your ear goes to sleep, mm. right? When you see that, your eye goes to sleep. Sorry, I I I appreciate. The greatness of what he did okay yeah but nuance in character if you nullify the little differences in character you move towards something more general and sometimes when you see somebody's work even though their work might be very well known it it looks different all in exactly the same way do you know what i'm talking about yeah and 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 like you know what damn jeff i want to be surprised I want to look at your work in a couple of years and go, this guy's, this guy's moving. He's looking, he's looking. Mm -hmm. Not that they're cooked. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, it's a silly phrase, but it was apt for the time. George Innes said, he goes, I prefer to consider myself dough rather than cake, always subject to a new impression. And if you look at his paintings, the thing I love about Innes is there's always a little battleground somewhere in his painting. He didn't have it down to a science. He wasn't going, look how clever I am. Man, the guy was digging. He was trying to say something. Like painting, the great painters, it's about saying something, not being heard anyway. Right. And that, that fundamental difference of having something to say, that, that's external versus internal motivation. And I think it was Robert Henry in his book, The Art Spirit, said, when somebody has something to say and they try very hard to say it, they will learn how to draw. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel the same way about character in things, in nature. You know, a, a budding tree. Yes, there's a, certain, there's a lot of really clever technicians out there. And the work is clever. And, it's, and it can be beautiful in its, in its own way. But you know what? If I look at your work and I see just Jeffrey Hine, yeah, not so impressed. What I want to see is it. I want to see you or anyone else informed by something bigger than them so that the funnel can grow outward with their work. That there's the chance for greater growth, that there's the opportunity for evolution. And there's a lot of artists, uh, you know, people we both know that play it really safe, they paint the same stuff over and over and over again because it works. Right. And they, you know, yeah. and, it's, and, and to me, you know what? I'm not questioning their judgment about that because we all have to make a choice. We all have to make a living. Right. Right. You know, I've had friends that say, you know, I'm a provider. I have to provide. Well, I get it, man. You know, I went through a divorce, start all over again with nothing. You yeah. know, got remarried, had a son, three, three kids I've had to take care of and pay for colleges and everything else. And I did it somehow doing this. Nobody's asking for that painting along the railroad, Jeff. You know, I mean, that is something that excites me. 
I see something, I drive by, and it was that over my door, uh, when you walk into my studio, I have a quote from uh, Rainer Maria Rilke from Letters to a Young Poet. He said, if your environment seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself. Tell yourself you are not yet poet enough to call forth its riches. For to the creator, there is no poor and indifferent place. That's beautiful. I'm going to, after this, I want to have you tell me that again. <laughs> so I, cause yeah, I'm going to no, forget. I will. Because I want to put that on my door. But let me, before you go any further, because you're telling me so many things and I've got questions like crazy and I want to keep track of Fire this, away, so. man. My time's your time. So, I'm wide open. Okay. I appreciate that. So, okay. So you, let's go back to the brushstroke. Um, okay. So there's a couple of things I want to touch on. We, we talked about the brush marks and, and, and then we talked about uh, this sense of place and being able to make a place. I'm going to put in layman's terms because I'm not terribly articulate, but what I heard were you saying was that you that if you're a great painter you can take a place that seems relatively ordinary and and put beauty into it mm -hmm. starting with the brushstroke so without being clever mm -hmm. you know because you know there's a there's certain artists um and i'm not i don't want to pick on artists in this podcast but you see it all the time where you have like a certain way of painting a bush and a certain way of painting a tree and a yes. certain way of painting a rock. Right. A and that's yeah. right. And that's what I think you're saying when you're talking about clever. Um, so explain to me, like I'm a lay person who's never picked up a brush. What are you thinking about if you're not going back to this formulaic solution time and time again, what are you thinking about when you're looking at an object and deciding how the how to shape your next stroke. I I, ha I absolutely have an answer for you on this. Good. I just went through this last year when I was doing some dropping classes. My teacher, uh, uh, after I got out of school of visual arts, I studied with this great painter. He was the one who taught me the prismatic palette, John Philip Osborne. Okay. And he was generous and he was kind, and I just can't ever thank that man enough for opening my world. But what he would do was he would put things into words. Uh, when I was trying to figure out how to use the prismatic palette, I'd say, well, what color is that? He'd say, eh, it's a violet-y, grayish green with a little orange and white in it. Mm -hmm. So you, your brain starts working and you go, okay. So now, likewise, when I'm teaching a student, I'll say, okay, you've got these two trees next to each other and a bush. They're all different. Now describe it to me. And the student said, well, the, the tree is spiky. It's like spikes in layman's terms. The darks were spiked. I'm like, perfect. Okay, what about the one next to it? It's rounded. It's a combination of rounded forms and angular forms. Okay, let's start with that. What about the next one? The transitions are very subtle. It softens from the dark to the light. It softens very, the transition is very subtle. And the edges are very feathery. Okay. Just think about those three descriptions now. And how you would apply a mark to serve those descriptions oh i love it and, and, and you're on your way <laughs> that's amazing so based on that explanation you never paint a painting the same way no i don't twice so no, you, you go from my one... paintings if you look at them they're all different right because they're as different as every object is to the object before it as as Je jeff to, uh, God's honest truth to the best of my ability. That's what I try to do. I think it, if you respect that thing that's in front of you and you're really interested 
and telling the story about it. See, I look at objects in the landscape the way you look at a face, mm-hmm. how different every face is. That's why I don't like generic forms in my paintings. I abhor uh, lazy shapes, drives me up a tree. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of the time people go, oh, well, you're a landscape painter. You don't have to worry about shapes. You don't have to worry about drawing, <laughs> blah, all that crap. You know, the, you know the, the bottom line is I don't, I think if I sat down, I could paint a pretty good likeness of you right now because, and, and it's not bragging. It's because that's the care that I take when I'm outside. I just try never to be lazy about it and to honor that the thing that makes that that thing. What is the spirit in that thing and how is it completely different than what's next to it? And again, I go back to the that that the propensity for the same mark. And you yeah. you see it with lots of painters, you know, go, you know, this or a flick or this or that, you know, and uh, actually one of the things that I hate and I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for saying this is now with this propensity of reels and stuff on Instagram is oh. I call them the aff- affected final touch videos. I can't oh, stand up where the painting's all done and the artist goes in and you see the hand go in and go, because <laughs> that's not scripted at all. That's, you know, that's oh, not man. premeditated. That's not, you know, Oh, come on. It's, oh, you know, man, I think it might be a generational please. thing because I, I can't bring myself to do reels at all. Oh, goodness. Just no, I just you know what it is. It's just that it, it, what what's happening is it's the, the tail wagging the dog at this point. Instagram is telling you if you want to get noticed, then you have to do this and you have to do that. I know. And now all these artists are constantly going, oh, my God, I got to redo the algorithm here so that I can figure out how to get out. And you're going to be you're, you're chasing the tail of a tiger, man. This is never going to end. Mm-mm. You know, this is, this is, it's, you know, I always think above, um, you know, it's like a, it's like a painting. It's how, you know, how a painting starts, you know, to, to me, it's not how you finish a painting, but it's how you start a painting, right? There's something about that. And if you're constantly chasing the painting, then you're always getting, you're always get something that that's not harmonic that generally has divided interest in it and things like that. And, I don't know. So I, I'm just, in a, and again, it could be something of an age thing as well. Uh, but I frankly, uh, you know, I think Instagram is a great tool uh, and it's a wonderful thing for artists today. But this idea that them saying, look, if you don't do this now, you're not going to get noticed. That's yeah. just how it is. Uh-huh. And so all, all, all these artists are becoming entertainers. Jesus, for crying out loud, don't you have, don't you struggle to get enough time to paint to begin with? Yeah. And now what you've got to do is you've got to go out and you've got to figure out how to do this and do that. So, you know, you get noticed. And the, the other part of it is this. We have both seen these people that are influencers out there, right? And there's a lot of different ways to get people's attention. Some of it's really salacious. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, people in, in scantily clad in front of a very bad canvas. You know, they get <laughs> 50,000 mm-hmm. likes or something and... But what does any of it mean, I guess, ultimately? And, and, um, and again, that idea of uh, if you're chasing something externally, that means you're taking yourself outside of that organic internal spiral that brings you to who you're meant to be. Every time you go outside of that spiral and you, do it, you follow external motivation, you're spiraling out on, on a diff, in a different direction. And I think it takes real great courage today um, and stamina and some insanely thick skin, which is very hard because, you know, I'll be painfully honest with you. 
I mean, oh man, I was the most sensitive kid you've ever met in your life, man. Cry at a heartbeat, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure the reason I spent eight years in the weight room and wrestling and all that stuff was to thicken up a shell around a very soft yolk. Yeah. You know, because, because that you, it's hard to be sensitive and be open to the world to receive it, but not also be crushed by it. Yeah. And so there's that constant dance. You know, because you, you hear these people go, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks and blah, blah, blah. And there may be some truth to that and there may not be truth to it, because as you well know, artists are like cats and really insecure cats. Mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's a good one. and I think the more um, uh, the more you expose yourself and I mean by that, be t telling the world what you love is real exposure. Yeah. Not following a trendy uh you know, a viewpoint, whatever that might be. You know, they finally came up with a good phrase for it, virtue signaling. There's mm -hmm. a whole lot of going, that going on today, particularly online. You know, I got in a huge amount of trouble uh, during the George Floyd thing that happened here. And it was in our backyard, practically. It was awful. Mm. But all these artists just started posting black spots. And I thought, what do you think that's going to do? Yeah. In the real world, what is any of that doing? It's not doing anything. So I put up a post and all I said, and it was very gentle. And I just said, though, I appreciate the act of solidarity behind the black spot and little it does truth. It does little to change anything. Why not instead everyday acts of kindness? Take somebody to the grocery store, you know, uh, you know, call somebody who's down, blah, blah, blah. That's all I said. And I got raked over the coals. Oh, I'm sure you did. And it was all of this virtue signaling that's going on out there. People, this, it's, it's, they want to be perceived as being a certain way. You know, and, and being an artist, man, it, to be a real artist for me is, is having a vision, uh, having an extraordinary set of skills, and somehow pulling those two things together. And, and it's a path historically and, and now that has always had to be walked alone. Mm -hmm. And in the in the 20th century, uh, something changed, especially with art criticism, where you were constantly being validated by being bracketed by other artists. OK, so a modern art critic might say uh, Jeffrey Hines work has shades of Twombly, but leanings of, of <laughs> uh, you know, of this other artist. And, you know, this meets that. In other words, right. that it can't just be what it is. You have to be validated by being bracketed between other people. And if you think about the world that we're living in currently and how plasticky it is and how narcissistic it is, um, who do we pay? Who, do, who gets paid the most in our society? Actors. Athletes. Oh, actors and athletes. Yeah. But what are actors? Their job is to be someone else. Yeah. So the people we reward the most highly are those who are gifted at being someone else. Just think about that. Isn't that bizarre? It's rather strange, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and I think, and, and so I think there's, uh, with most artists, there's, there's fear, deep-seated fear that they're not good enough uh, uh, or they don't have anything to bring to the world. And so it's easier to, to go down the trodden path, you know, and, and uh, kind of uh, follow what other people have done, what, what's been pre-approved or pre-accepted. And so you see certain painters that are painting like the 19th century, 
-hmm. You know, you see, you know, I walked into a gallery in California and I saw some in a gallery. I saw somebody that was ripping off Hopper so badly. You're kidding. (laughs) That it was an embarrassment, I thought, to the gallery. And it's just like there's everything about this. There's, There's nothing left of this human being. And then years ago, I had a collector, a wonderful fellow, uh, just a dear friend. But early in his career, he had collected a particular artist who was constantly painting like the Impressionists. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Pizarro, namely. And, he, and, he, and he, was, he wouldn't take no for an answer because I didn't want to engage in this dialogue with him. And he said, what do you think of these paintings? Of his, of his paintings? Uh, yeah, yeah, of the, this particular artist's painting. Yeah. I said, don't ask me that. He said, no. He said, tell me what you think of the paintings. I said, did you ever see Silence of the Lambs? He said, yeah. He said, you know, where he peeled off someone's face and he put it on his own? He said, yeah. I said, that's what those paintings are. Oh, harsh. <laughs> oh, true. man. Sorry. Yeah. yeah look, it, it, you know, don't ask if you don't want to hear it, you know? Right. I mean, the, the bottom line is everybody's so busy being palatable that nobody has a real conversation about anything anymore. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that I have. I don't have to be right. You know, I was telling you on the break that my biggest thing is, uh, my biggest abhorrence these days is certitude of people that are certain about things. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain about anything, man. I'm clear about certain things right now based on what I know yeah, and how I feel about something, but I'm never done, you know? And, and I think, the, you know, the art world on both sides, whether you're representational or non-representational, is filled with people that are defending themselves with swords of vested interest, right? As somebody once said, you know what? I don't need to denigrate what you're doing to elevate what I do. I just do what I do. You do what you do, okay? Let's mm-hmm. just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody once said to me in New York, a, a former director of a big gallery in New York said, you know, you would think that in the 21st century, there is room enough for both, right? But you know, what happened with 2000 and 2006 or 2008 is a lot of galleries uh, stopped selling representational painting out of fear because they weren't selling painting. So they just assumed it was the art. So they went back to the what they knew before, which was. Non- oh, I didn't know this. Really? Yeah. The Spanderman, Spanderman Gallery was a real big one in New York. Great gallery. It had been open for over 100 years. And he told two, two, two well-known painters that I know that representational painting is dead. And he started going back to selling non-representational painting. And I think he kept the gallery open for a few more years and then it closed ultimately. Hmm. So I just think there is room for everything. I think what would, is really refreshing though is when somebody tells their own story. Yeah. And um, I had a dream a bunch of years ago and I was really struggling with trying to figure out, you know, who I am and where I want to go with my work. And it was wonderfully symbolic. And it was on New Year's Eve. Wait, 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 wait. How many years ago was this? It was maybe 15 years ago. Okay. And how long have you been painting? Oh, geez. I've been painting since outdoors since 1986. So long time. So that I don't want to skim over that. Um, you, so you felt like you didn't know who you were and you want to figure out who you are just no, you 15 know what I years felt like ago. I, the analogy that I'll use is I felt like I was, wasn't wearing the right jacket. Right. Like I, I could put it on, but it just didn't fit right. And I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on because I'd been studying intensely and, and I was trying to be very truthful to nature and all that. But that's not art all by itself either. 
rent, you know, copying, you know, trying to be faithful to the thing in front of you, you know, to a, you know, mimetic or a photographic degree, which I was never anyway. But the point was, I have this dream and I walk into a gallery and it's one of these big square box galleries and there's paintings all along the walls and there's framing tables in the middle of the room and the room's wide open. And I'm looking at the work. I walked in with my wife. She went one way, I went the other. And all of a sudden I look down at the table and there's these large, uh, like 30 by 40 inch unrolled, very important, unstretched, unframed, unrolled canvases sitting on the tabletop. Mm -hmm. And they were uh, riveting, riveting, absolutely riveting. Mm -hmm. Like I've never seen anything quite like this before. So uh, I asked the gallery director, I said, excuse me, could you tell me who did these? And she said, sure, it's that young woman, you know, you know, young woman over there in the corner. She's this beautiful young woman in a flannel shirt, untucked with jeans with holes in them and paint all over her jeans. I said, excuse me, may I ask you uh, about your paintings? And she was annoyed. She was like, what do you want? What do you want? What? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, I just would like to ask you about the paintings. What do you want to know? She said. I said, could you tell me where you painted these? And she goes over there and she points out the window, the front of the gallery. And across the street is an empty lot that had gone fallow. You know, the little bushes, scrubby trees and bushes growing up. And I walked over to the window and I looked out there and I'm like, oh my God, she did paint that. But she painted a subjective truth. The color in it was subjective, but it was all still subordinate to nature. Hmm. It was amazing. I'm like, that was the answer, right? It's not just about faithful, faithful representation, which is, I, I think it's always been important, at least in my study, but it's also about making really good subjective choices and connecting okay. spirit to, to a mark. So I want to and ask you about this inter integration of those two things. This is something that um, I've really put a lot of thought into as I've started to explore landscape painting, because I've heard two different approaches to landscape painting and yours might be sort of a hybrid. Uh, and that's what I, that's why I want to ask you about it. But one is it doesn't matter what you're painting. It matters what the picture looks like. Right. And so I've seen people. <laughs> okay. So I've yeah, seen go people go out and they'll be paint, plain air painting and move things so dramatically and then they'll bring it back into the studio and completely change it again. Um, and it's no longer what where where they were even standing. It looks completely different. And their attitude wow. is. OK, no, I know exactly where you're going. Yeah. OK, go but let me give you the opposite extreme. So the, the, their attitude is it doesn't matter. What matters is making a beautiful picture. Now, just to be clear, I don't have a problem with either perspective. I just. I just want to know what you think and because I admire your work so much, but also I want to tell you kind of where I'm leaning and get your thoughts. And then the other extreme is sure. like this sort of site size approach where you go out and you literally copy it and you'll see these people on Instagram, like having their painting almost camouflaged into the background. It's painted up. Yeah. I don't right? like that. I'm not a fan. I'm so not, those are I'm the two extremes. You know what? All right. So let's talk about this. Yeah. Okay. I have very clear thoughts on But actually, let me, let me expand a little further. So my feeling is this. Sure. I'm, when I go out to a place, I'm experiencing that place, right? And I want to be truthful yeah. enough to that place that when a collector buys that, they have something of it. 
right? It's not just right. a picture, but on some level, at least, it it is a it is an it is a relatively honest portrayal of that place. Mm-hmm. So finding that balance for me is is what I'm interested in. What I mean, what is your perspective on that? I think actually that's a wonderful observation. What I, I don't differ uh, terribly with you on this. Uh, what I will say is this, like I said, mimetic or copying the sight size thing where they try to line the painting up with the thing. I find it, uh, I'm sorry, because I've got friends that do it that I have great respect for, but I, it's just tricky to me. And and look, if you want to paint a Trump Loy painting, do a Trump Loy painting. Right. You know, and, and I'm going to use Innes. I'm going to quote Innes on this because he, he is a, he had a brilliant quote about it. Uh, and he said, there's a bar in New York with a painting of a barn door with hinges so real, you'd almost believe it was a real door. But the very fact that it's a painting tells you it's a lie. So why bother? Yeah. Let a painting be a painting. So and, and see that I agree with. Totally agree with. I also agree with being thoughtful to, to what's in front of you. I think the tones that exist in nature are so delicate and exquisite and, and, and very hard to attain. Neutrals, finding rich neutrals that serve color in a painting is one of my favorite pursuits, right? It's not about color. It's about how you serve it with neutrals because Colors like a, you know, I say once in a while, somebody will send me a painting uh, to, to critique. I'll say it's like a room full of redheaded stepchildren all screaming at the mm-hmm. same time for attention. So, so because you're using chroma everywhere. Chroma cancels out chroma. It's like someone who screams all the time. After a certain point, you, the message is lost, right? So, so while I appreciate that, I think especially for a student, and actually I believe this fervently, going in and telling students, oh, if you don't like that, change it and move it and everything else, I think it's a huge mistake. And, and, and uh, again, I'm probably getting myself in some hot water here, but I'm going to tell you why. Because learning relativity is the key first. Learning to make things relative to each other. Carolus Duran, you probably know this from mm-hmm. what I read about Sargent, when he studied with Duran, they had to paint every plane on the head with a separate color and value and were not allowed to soften an edge until everything was completely in harmony. So it wasn't about softening and it wasn't about edges. It was about the relativity of tonal planes and color, color planes. And so learning to paint what exists, the relativity that, that really, relativity that exists in front of you, I think is really hard. And mm-hmm. I think it's a really beautiful thing. And a lot of the time I've met people that exaggerate terribly with their work. And I just wonder if they actually took the time to actually see things as they are, if they might not be more satisfied, hmm. right? Instead of trying to put your stamp on it all the time. See, to, to me, that, that there's that, the balance of both those worlds that you're talking about. The spirit of the place, look, the spirit of the place and the character of the mark changes the mark. For me, mm-hmm. right? So I'll use thick paint, thin paint, semi-opaque, opaque, semi-transparent, whatever it's going to take. I will, if I'm painting old concrete, the only way I can get to that is to pull one color thinly over another with spots of opaque areas to help create that sense of solidity. Then that's what I'm going to do. Mm. But that's one of the reasons I've never done a video where somebody says, um, I've had people say, why don't you just do a video on trees? <laughs> I go, that won't work. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, or clouds or this or that, because everybody's looking for the little hook. And, right. uh, you know, I don't, I don't make people happy generally because I don't tell them what they want to hear. I'm never unkind as a teacher ever. I don't believe in that, that whole 19th century thing about being mean and belittling people. I hate all that, but honesty is important. Right. You know, and if your drawing is subpar and your color and value is advancing beyond that, you're going to be in trouble later on. And that drawing is going to be the anchor that you drag behind you forever. Mm -hmm. So if you want to work on that drawing to, to, to keep those skill sets in the full alignment so that these more delicate or sensitive or deeply felt things that you want to say, they'll, they'll be within reach because you'll have the skill to get to it. Right. How do you get to that level of nuance? There's two, two, there's two parts of it. Because have you ever seen uh, with children, sometimes they'll draw a self-portrait, and even though everything's wrong, it looks just like them? Mm -hmm. What is that child getting that we're missing? That's number one. And that's the spirit of something. They're unfettered by preconceptions, and they receive their reception is different than ours. So they're seeing actually what's important. They're not seeing everything. Yeah. And I think that's an important consideration. That's where I think, you know, uh, learning to paint optically, all of a sudden, instead of rendering everything, if you just said, I'm going to, I, I want to look here, you know, or having a, 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 um, a hierarchy of lights in your painting, for example, you know, with glare. I was teaching somebody last year and I was sitting outside doing my mentoring because it was a, like a beautiful spring day. And um, I was in the parking lot and uh, right by my truck. And um, I was looking at the highlights that were hitting the bumpers on the cars. Mm -hmm. I was trying to explain the hierarchy of lights. And when I took a picture of it, all the highlights were the same value. But when I stared at the car on the left and I let my peripheral vision tell me what was happening, those lights diminished as they went outside of that focal area. Now, is that because light. of how peripheral vision works or did they actually yes, diminish? Yes, but okay. bino it's binocular vision, yeah. Right, okay. The camera sees everything equally. Mm -hmm. So if you're combining, so imagine if you can combine sensitivity, feeling, character-oriented marks and learning to paint optically, that's going to lead you to making subjective choices in a painting. So explain painting opti op op excuse me, optically. All right, so basically, I always use the example when I teach a workshop, say I have a big group of people, say yeah. there's 18 people and they're sitting in a half circle, yeah. okay? I'll say, okay, here's the example. I want you to stare at any two people that are sitting next to each other, all right? I want you to focus on person number one. Just squint down and focus on person number one. They're sitting right next to each other, so you can make a relative judgment, okay? Right. When you're staring at person number one, notice the intensity of color, the value contrast, and the transitional edges. Without staring at person number two, take them in, Make, it, make a conscious choice while you're staring at number one to notice what's different in your periphery. And then after about 10 seconds, move your eye to person number two. And then people go, oh, wow. Wait, and then at that point, do you paint what you remember from your peripheral no, no, observation? No, because you can learn to paint what's in your periphery. There's a painting on my website. I don't know if you can find it. It's way down, in the, it it's way down in the queue. Actually, it would be a great one. 
You have to go way down. It's called Brooklyn with Barrel. It's way, way down to the bottom. Huge okay. epiphany on that painting, okay? Okay. That's painted 90% from life outdoors. Very panicked two days, okay? That's a huge uh, painting to do outdoors. It, yeah, I know. It was insane. And my, 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 my friend Andrew Lattimore is a terrific artist was kind enough to drive us down there. We left at 3 a.m. from Cornwall, New York, to be in Manhattan by 4.30 so we could get a parking spot. And it was just me and about 700 Asian people doing their morning Tai Chi in this one spot, mm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and I had no sleep the night before, and I'm looking, at, I'm looking at all of Brooklyn. And I'm like, oh, and I'm exhausted. You know, I'm swigging my coffee. I'm going, well, how am I going to do this? All right. First, get the design. I got the design down. Okay, I like this. I like, I put that stanchion of the Brooklyn Bridge exactly where I wanted. It's kind of right on the golden mean in the painting, right? Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, made everything relative to that. But if you could blow the painting up, what you would see is the focal area is that stanchion of the bridge in the area directly below it. Yeah. And I had this amazing epiphany and it worked, which was amazing because I, you can't paint every window in Brooklyn. You'll go crazy and pitch yourself in the river. It's impossible. So I said to myself, okay, the first tall building directly to the right of the bridge. And when I stare at the bridge, how many windows am I perceiving in my peripheral vision? Okay, so would that be so this that building would be the here? Blue building, the blue building in the back. That one. Okay. Yeah. And then, then the one below it. And then I, as you move to the right, what you're going to notice is the buildings start to lose windows. Oh, look at that. That's and there's almost brilliant. no windows, and it looks completely real because it's how we actually see. On, um, But you did put windows over here, so why did you yeah, decide look, that? If you blow that up, you'll see even that the information is subordinate. Right, right that. here. Yeah, right here right? it sort of disappears. Yeah. Oh, that was a great lesson. That's going to save me years of experimentation. That changed, my, that changed my life, Jeff. Yeah. That the learning to paint th that way. And like I said, the beauty of that is now when I'm painting, whether it's a large painting or small painting, I'm making conscious choices all over that thing all the time. So painting optically uh, is painting in your peripheral. Or being aware of how being that aware. periphery is, is affected by when you stare at your focal area, whatever that is. Okay. You okay. Know, and if you have multiple focal areas in the painting, that's when I think when somebody uses the phrase traditionally and unfortunately pejoratively, when they say something is illustrative, mm -hmm. what they mean is that you've given undue attention to everything in the picture. Right. You've rendered your way through the image. And then it becomes like that analogy with the redheaded kids in the, you know, yeah, everyone's redheaded, then everything's attention. got it wants yeah. attention. Yeah. So hierarchy is really, really important in a painting, right? How you establish a hierarchy. All right, let and me- you can have a hierarchy of lights and darks. Okay, let me ask you another question that you had talked about this a while back and I already mentioned it, but this idea of taking ordinary places and being able to find the beauty in ordinary places you are a master at this and i find this a good example i mean i i've told other people this that i've interviewed i could drive around for hours looking for that babbling brook because i'm guilty of that right I, we all are right we all do we all do that especially in the beginning yeah you know and the and, and i always say to people especially younger people that are kind of getting started out there and 
you know, they can't wait to be in a gallery. And all of a sudden the gallery says, oh, you just did 10 more of those babbling brooks. Yeah. So what it takes a very strong person to go, yeah, I, I really can't do that. All you're thinking is, well, first of all, it strokes my ego. ego. Second of all, you know, it, it uh, puts money in the bank account and, you know, right. can pay bills. And, and uh, you know, for me, that painting you're looking at right there, I just, I love it. You know how a person's face always tells a story? Yeah. Right? Every line in their face. When my dad passed, I did a eulogy for my dad. And I talked about his hands because they were scarred and gnarly. His nails were split from using a, a rock hammer, cutting stone. And every crack in those hands was something that he gave up for all of us to give us this life that we uh, That's had. beautiful. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, when I looked at that, I saw those unpainted, those old unpainted rusted towers. And I thought, by God, that patina tells a story. You know, there's a, there's a painting at the Getty Museum uh, uh, by someone, I think the name is Van Sweerts. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's the, called Head of an Old Woman. And it's a char woman, a woman of cleaned houses. And Jeff, that painting can make you cry. Hmm. He caught, the artist caught this gentle, humble resignation in her face. Hmm. And it's this face, it's still beautiful, but probably was one stunningly beautiful. You know, you can tell by her mouth, she's probably lost most of her teeth. Like, it, everything is about the beauty of telling that story. So as a landscape painter, why should we be any different? I want to tell you the story about those towers as best I can visually. So was All it the, the story? Winters. Was it the story that drew you in or was it a, no, comp was no, it a composition? It can be any of those things. And I think that's the, 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 the great mistake is thinking a painting has to come from one inspiration. Well, can you like, tell me specifically me, about this one? This one, basically, the, uh, I love this, this, these, this. Let me put it this way. There is an unintentional, often beauty in functional design, mm -hmm. in industrial design. Robert Henry, in the book, The Art Spirit, talked about how he collected tools because he loved the beauty of the utility of the design. And I think in industrial design, these things are first utilitarian, but there's a certain beauty in that utility that I find intriguing. Mm -hmm. The proportions, the scale, the shapes, all of those things. And then you get all this variety. You get round against square, you know, hard against soft edges. You get this, you get everything. The, the beauty always exists in its proximity to opposites, right? Yeah. And when I see something that has this amazing collection of this proximity of opposites, it's always terribly intriguing to me. Yeah. And so, and so yeah, I mean, the, 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 the tank car on the right has got rust on it, this greenish, and it was that weird kind of, operating room green you know mm -hmm. this but it wasn't incongruous with the rest of the painting it was unusual but not incongruous right you got the green with the violet behind it and you've got you've got orange and blue right you've got red and green going on in there so it's a whole cacophony of things sometimes it's the spirit of a place that drives me to paint it sometimes it's the power of a silhouette that drives me to paint it Sometimes it's a color harmony I've never seen in my entire life. Sometimes it's a light effect that's so incredible that I'm like, I've got to see if I can get a piece of this. 
So mm. whatever motivation gets me there, my sternum starts vibrating when I'm looking at something. However it got me there, I don't care. I got to go after that thing and see if I can get a piece of it. Do you find that that instinct, well, I'm going to use that term instinct. I don't know if that's what you would call it, but the ability to know that something is a potentially good subject comes with time. Is it something that you've, that has gotten sharper over time? Yeah, because it's about, uh, I, I'll keep going back to sensitivity. Yeah. You know, when I saw Evening on the Volga by Isaac Levitan, mm -hmm. what I saw uh, was a level of sensitivity that was so uncommon that subject became almost irrelevant. Hmm. Think about that. And it was like The Unfinished Slaves by Michelangelo. Now, granted, the David is perfect, and it is. I would never criticize Michelangelo in any way. But the David was done by a 21-year-old man telling the world he's perfect. He's the best. He even signed the sash, right? And it's The Unfinished Slaves, the work of an old man who had nothing left to prove, simply telling the world what he loved. So this brings up another thought. So sometimes subject that you might find interesting for uh, for a variety of reasons may, maybe it's composition or silhouette or some of the other things you mentioned just has an innate power because of people's relationship to that subject exactly that's and what it, i mean you there's a spirit to a place and sometimes right that is overwhelming enough right right so what is the job of the artist so let me give you an example i'm painting the crucifixion right now okay and uh, i had my catholic cleaning lady come in uh yesterday and and she had the same reaction she had two weeks before and two weeks before that it's just like she gasps every time she sees it she never gasped wow. at a painting before right i mean she she you can tell she appreciates what i do but but it, she clearly has an emotional connection, connection with that to, subject yes. right so what do you believe your responsibility is as the artist when you have such an impactful subject like a lot of people, for example, the one right above it, coincidentally, is something that Yosemite, something that people might have a connection to, be it that they visit there a lot, or it's just beautiful, or they they live in that region and they appreciate that space. Whatever the reason, what do you think your job is as the artist at that point when you're dealing with a subject that already has so much impact? Well, you know what? There's a, I'm going to quote Rilke here. Yeah, uh, and and uh, and it's a, uh, I'll ruin the quote, but it's good. It's from that okay. same. There's two pages. I'll 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 send it to you. Uh, I'll take a picture of the two. There's two gr greatest thing I've ever read on why anyone should create. And it was yeah. from letters to a young poet. He said, "Avoid at first love poems. They are too facile and commonplace. For it takes a fully matured individual to bring something." Uh, a good where great traditions come to mind in quantity. Therefore, my dear sir, save yourself from these everyday themes and search out the themes of your everyday life. Hmm. And what he was basically saying is, if you're going to tackle a love poem or a love song or a crucifixion, you damn well better have something personal and big to bring to it. That's a because, great answer. You know, thank you for that. It. Yeah. Yeah. So you so you feel like these types of subjects demand not less attention because they already have their own innate power, but even more. Like you, so even more. And I think it's I think it's more there's more responsibility put on the artist, you know, uh, you know, to, to if you follow up with that quote, you know, to, to find something 
Because I think it's possible to paint a covered bridge and not have it trite if you love covered bridges. Right. Right. But the problem is when you go to Italy, you get you get you get toxed out on cherubs. Yeah. <laughs> Italian paintings are right. just there's just chunky little kids with wings everywhere, man. They're everywhere. Right. You know, and that's where and I that's and I think even if I look at, you know, some of Bouguereau's, even though Bouguereau was a great painter, I just I'm bored by it. Yeah, it's a form. Right. Uh, that it takes a real unique vision. And certain painters historically have been able to transcend that. OK, I think of uh, Bastien Lepage. I think of Fontaine Latour. Mm -hmm. Fontaine Latour was painting still life with thousands of people painting still or uh, still life around him. Well, what was it that he could bring to it? I mean, and who has the audacity to believe they can bring something to a rose, for God's sakes? Mm -hmm. The only thing you can bring to a rose is love and humility. And you paint it with a caress, like, uh, uh, like uh, um, uh, what's his name? Henry Abbott Fair. Oh, his roses are beautiful in this painting. You feel them. And that's why I said, I mean, it, it, I'd like to feel it if I could, if I look at something and not just see it. The other one, uh, the other painting at the Getty is, is, uh, is, uh, is a crucifixion by Rubens. Mm -hmm. And again, it's another one that was incredibly moving to me. There's real emotion in it. You know, it's not merely pictorial. Hmm. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I, I, like I said, I think that's all we have. If you're going to take a, a hidebound subject, Something that's been done, like like Rilke said, really well by a whole lot of people. The only thing you have to bring to it is your take on it. And if your take is genuine and the desire to say that thing overrides everything else, then maybe the marks you make will resonate with feeling and maybe that feeling will resonate with other people. And that's finding the universal in the particular. And, you know, that's not easy to do. So... So what I think you're suggesting is that authenticity is critical, particularly when dealing with heavy subjects with a lot of emotional. I, th I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, it, go, it goes with everything. Yeah. You know, I, I'm bored by so much art, art that I see because I've seen it all before and it really right. is purely p pictorial, you know, hmm. and you know, that's not, that's not what kept me painting all these years. Yeah, you know, and and it, you believe me, if I I understand what it's like to have bills and to, you know, support a family on one income and do all that kind of stuff and try to keep pure, you know, and it's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go down right now if you paint cowboys really well, you're you know you have a really good opportunity, right? There's certain genres that are big, and and you know some artists move into those genres because that's where the coin is. Yeah. And and uh, and I, I, I I'm not making a judgment about that. I'm just identifying a fact. You know, but I think, you know, carving your own path uh, is, is tough because there's so much noise out there. Right. And not only do you have your own self-doubts, which I think anybody worth their salt will own up to. But if you don't get any validation from the outside, then what? And very often it takes a long time to paint credibly enough at all to even be noticed. So it's easy to understand why people move towards more convenient modes of expression, i.e. adopting the mannerisms of others. You know, 
You know what? You know what I tell have told my students for years, which I think is uh, congruent with what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I've told them that stop thinking about trying to be unique. Stop just just paint because you were born different than anyone else on this planet. And if you just yeah. be you just paint the way it feels intuitive to you, then you will mm -hmm. be unique. Right. Well, you know what? It's uh, uh, somebody once said it's discovering what's already there. Right. It's just fear. It's it's, uh, you know, it's a big part of this. I give it authenticity and creativity talk. And I've been working on a book for years about this. And, it, and it's that whole thing about self-doubt, you know, and like I said, it's not helped at all by by things like Instagram. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you start to begin to measure your life based on that, you're going to um, model your life around that. And that's going to take you away from anything that's organic in, in a way of finding out who you're meant to be while you're in this lifetime. For whatever reason, Jeff, what's what's really appealing to people, it seems to me, just based on numbers that you look at, yeah. are really highly photographic images. Right. Painted photographically. You see these people doing these giant canvases and they're using this little tiny brush, you know, or they're painting a giant hamburger with mustard next to it or a giant wave, you right. know. And, uh, you know, Richard Estes did it better back in 1972, you know, and uh, there are certain galleries that that sell only that kind of stuff. And I just I understand that it feels contemporary uh, or looks contemporary. But like I said, it often doesn't feel like anything. If you're constantly rendering something, you're not necessarily suggesting something. Mm -hmm. Think uh, clarity and economy with brevity are lovely. Right. Say what you got to say and be done with it. You know, and there's a lot of verbosity with the brush. You know, some people, when you look at the paintings, you think they got paid by the brush stroke, you know. Right. <laughs> and uh, but that's very popular. And like I said, you know, I'm not saying it should be or shouldn't be. I'm just saying that just seems to be the, 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 the prevailing taste. But what I think you, you are know? saying and what I was alluding to with my experience is that you can't define or direct your career based on those things. In other words, no, but based a on... lot of people do. A lot yeah. of people do. And it's, see, here's the here's the mixed message thing. A lot of people do, and they're highly effective at it. Mm -hmm. And that becomes, you know, a case study for all these other people who, who want to be successful in quotes. Yeah. Right. And uh, so I don't know. I don't have any answers for anybody. You know, I'm just getting to be old enough now that I just realize I do what I do. I try to keep it as pure as I can, meaning the motivation behind what I do. And I try to uh, leave a, I'm going to leave a mark behind that's of my time. Ah, beautiful. That I paint, Love it. That I paint my time, you know, not somebody else's. Well, let's talk about a few more of your paintings here. Is there, are there any in particular that you'd like to talk about? I don't... Well, if you scroll up, there's a lot, there's more newer paintings up okay, uh, if you scroll the other way. Um, so while I'm scrolling, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, I want to talk about this one is one of my favorites. Um, but before I do, one of the things I want to talk to you about is your relationship with photography. Um, because I know that, frankly, you don't need it, right? But I also know that you use it on occasion. So what yeah, is that? I take, I take what a is that relationship? 
And, and how? Well, do, basically, how do you it's a, it's a, it's a it's a. Uh, it's a it's a distantly respectful relationship. Okay. I, I don't like I don't like working from photography. I just did four small little Italian ones. Yeah. From reference uh, of where I'm going to be teaching my workshop coming up in September in Padula, Italy. Mm -hmm. And and I just I, I love Italy and I can't wait to go paint it. So basically, what I did was I thought you know I don't mind doing this because I paint almost exclusively from life, and and basically the photo is it really is a departure point. Okay. You know, for me, but I don't generally. Almost everything you're looking at here was painted from life. Even these, um, all these twenty-eight by forties and and bigger. Are yeah. You, even you those... scroll up, you you scroll up, you'll see. Uh, um, yeah, they're all painted, uh, all painted from life. Unbelievable. Now that I wasn't aware of, I assumed that. Yeah, that's all. You did life. some all of it of in that. the studio. That one I had reference photo because it was thirty below. Right. I, did, I tried to block it in outside till my hands went numb and I almost couldn't get my car. Wow. But, you know, pretty much everything else is, I'll tell you what's, you know, pretty much done from life, all done from life. So let's talk about this one, a gentle indifference, 24 by 30. Yeah. I had a painter, landscape painter once tell me that he would avoid subjects like this. So for those who aren't watching, this is a grove of trees that's very dense. And he said he would avoid subjects like this because of the complexity and the shapes weren't simple enough and it wouldn't make a good painting. Well, you've yeah, I had proven real, that I, wrong. I, I, well, you know what, though? I went out, I spent, uh, I was just finishing up a workshop and I had a 24 by 30 in the car. And, and this, uh, this, these woods on Madeline Island where I teach, it was a real spiritual center for the Native Americans. And when you go in those woods, you feel something. It's very powerful. And uh, I remember walking down this path and you see, you see the bottoms are all cut off by the deer. That's how, why you can see underneath it. They eat oh, up as right. high as they can go. So that beautiful strip of violet, thank God, was there because it played off the green in there. But I, I remember I walking down the path on my last day to go give a critique, and I'm like, I've got to paint this. And I called my wife. I said, hey, honey, what's going on? Do we have anything going on next couple of days? I really want to take a shot at this. So I'd spent two mornings, and there were gray days, and I got the painting to around 85%, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it did need nuance. It did need push-pull and lost and found edges, and I had a reference. But most of the painting was done on site. Mm -hmm. But what happened is I, I learned a big lesson on this because I remember being cocky. I came in, and I was all excited about it, and I thought, I'll just finish this this afternoon. The first day. And in my, in my bull-in-a-china shop way, I almost ruined the painting. Mm. And I thought, you idiot, slow the hell down look at it let the painting tell you what it needs which trees need to come forward which need to go back which need to interlock and disappear into others and and how am i going to direct the light in here and where am i going to bring up information where am i going to suppress information you know i spent five days doing 10 percent of that painting and that was a big lesson wow and and uh and that's what brought me to kind of where i am now where I'll do 80, 90, 90 plus percent of a big painting outside, but that last 10%, I'm not in a hurry. Okay. And that's when I'll you let often- painting, I'll Let the painting tell me what it needs. And will you, is that a pretty common practice that you'll take a reference and do the last 10 or 20% or? Yeah, but I, I don't rarely look at reference. Oh, I really? If I need it. Yeah. If I need it for a bit of information or something. Okay. You know? So I need to spend more time, I mean, more time outside. Like this is- this is amazing to me how large these are. It's it's really uncommon. I'm sure 
Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this common in the landscape painting world? No, it's becoming more common. It's actually becoming a thing. To paint big paintings I was, I, on location. Yeah, a lot of people are starting to do larger work. Oh, outside. that's great to hear. Yeah, you know, I've been doing it for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and as a matter of fact, when I first started doing it, people didn't believe I did these things outside. It's very unusual. Go, At least it used you to be. You didn't paint that outside. I'm like, yeah, I did. <laughs> you know. So this one's one of my favorite too, because again, it's like I would have driven right past this. Yeah, it's kind of nothing, right? Right. It's, it's just a little pocket of a of a valley, a corner in a valley. But you know that cast shadow. We the you know the shadows were moving the whole time, and I used the shadow as a design element. And I'm like, I want to pull your eye into this space, you know, create an opposing diagonal with the hills and then with the clouds and and just, you know, have fun with taking what nature is presenting me and designing with it. Okay, so, so I'm going to display my ignorance in front of the world here again. But so you, you're driving down the road and you see this, but the shadow's not there, right? Well, the shadow, when I set up to paint, the shadows were all over the place. I just right. picked the pattern. Yeah, you, had to, you had to design it. So technically what you were seeing wasn't the design you would ultimately have in the painting. The clouds, no, no, clearly, heavens, no. the clouds yeah. clearly weren't the ultimate design of the painting when you drove through. So no. are you calculating all this stuff as soon as you see it? Because It's all happening. It's just happening in real time. But then how the do you is, know to stop when it's not a painting without the changes? Does that make sense? Because you made it a painting by putting the shadow in there, by redesigning the clouds, you made it into a good composition. So what right. is it about, what is it that told you this will be a good painting when it doesn't, it isn't, isn't already designed well? Well, you know what? For years, I worked as a designer, right? Uh-huh. Regular designer, graphic designer and studied typography and this and that. And there's such a beauty to scale and proportion and thin and thick and this and that. And, and I actually put a, a course together. Uh, um, uh, it's, uh, it's composition and design for painters. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, starting with the linear aspect of a picture first and dealing with balance, unity, variety, and interest and contrast. And then starting to work with four values, black and white and two grays and learning to take a single image and try to distill that, take the same painting and paint four different light effects on it with four values mm -hmm. to organ. So you learn to organize and group your tones, right? So you're not, you know, kind of the, to use the crass phrase, kind of pissing in the wind. You're being very targeted about, you know, the, the, how the eye is moving through it. If you scroll up, I don't know. There's a there's a small painting from um, it's up quite a ways on I'll the on the small work. Well, actually, this one here. No, actually, you can go back a little bit. You see the valley scene you just passed. Keep going down, 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 down. Oh, oh. down, down. Okay. Down. Uh, where is it? You just passed. Oh, maybe. Let's keep going. It was a big valley scene. Uh, where is it? Oh, it's gone. Sorry, man. I bet it was up. Uh, maybe it was up. Man, you've got a lot of work here unbelievable that one's gorgeous see this is this is a cool one here let's talk about this one uh because that's uh i was doing a painting trip with my good friend john cosby uh like you know it's it's great to have a buddy that you can work with that has the same kind of work ethic you know you get up early have your coffee and you work your tail off all day and have a nice dinner and sit down and look at the work at the end of the day and uh, 
he and I are both enamored with Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. And I just read of mice and men. So uh, he's, he, he said, you know, we should do a little road trip. We should do a, like a week and a half painting trip through the Salinas Valley. And uh, so basically there's a scene in that book where the, the protagonist in the book has to end up killing his buddy. And he, he talks about the water coming along the bank at a particular part in the stream underneath the sycamores. And I guarantee you this is the spot he was talking about. But when I saw it and it had all this space, this sense of atmosphere and this beautiful rhythmic movement going through it, you know, that was painted over uh, two evenings and then finished a little finish up in the studio when I got home. So, you know, having to freeze the effect, right? Because the shadows are creeping in and in a short period of time, that valley's in full shadow. So I've learned how to do that. There was a painting I wanted to show you that I did as a demo further up uh, that I did, and I designed the entire thing. The shadows were moving constantly, and I started with an underpainting for the darks only, froze the entire effect, thinking about hierarchy and rhythm and how the eye moves through the piece through all the shadows, because the shadows are what... the sh- If I can find unity within the shadow, I can throw the kitchen sink into the light in terms of color. Really? But the shadows have got to be unified and organized, and that shadow pattern is the golden thread that ties the entire painting together. But learning how to design with the shadow and light and dark in a way that 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 takes time. And when I studied with Osborne, he had a Thursday evening class and he would he would say, all right, I think it's time for you to try to do a painting out of your head. And I thought he was crazy. And I realized I could learn to do that. Now, is it as nice as something you're actually looking at? Generally not. But you're dealing with what you know and don't know. So you learn to group shapes, you learn to organize form, you learn to create a hierarchy in the linear aspect so the eye, so the painting has a chance to be active rather than passive, right? So there's rhythmic connectivity within the forms that everything flows into everything else and there's a hierarchy of form, primary, secondary, tertiary shapes so that you see everything as one first and then you can delight, you know, in the in the internal passages wherever you decide to look in the image. Hopefully, hmm. oh, that's really great. So you mentioned earlier the drawing. You know what I've noticed yeah. in landscape painting is you always know when the artist is only a landscape painter when they're buildings, yes. when they paint buildings, bikes, tractors, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cars cars right because then the drawings fall apart um i mean and clearly you know how to draw because i've noticed that about your barns and your you know whatever it is that's or that's inorganic that you draw they're so convincing so solid so structurally sound um well you know how it is like in a face or in a figure that tiny shift in an angle you know mm -hmm. i taught figure drawing here in my studio for 14 years Mm-hmm. And I'd have a student that was totally despondent on her five-minute drawing, whatever, doing gesture and get, trying to get the importance of the start, the foundation. And if the start has rhythmic connectivity and hierarchy and placement and all of that, everything else, you know, will kind of fall into place in the image. And uh, sometimes they'd be all upset, and I would come over and I say, "May I show you something?" They say, "Sure." And I take the charcoal and I would make the tiniest difference in the angle on one side of the figure, and then it would react differently to the other side of the figure and the whole thing would fall into place. And I'd be like, see, you weren't that far off, but this level of nuance is super important. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you looked at that little painting you were just looking at, it's called Looking for Tom Joe, the old house. I, I saw that and I just thought of, 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 um, of uh, Grapes of Wrath. I mean, I could just see, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, Tom Joad out there. And it turned out that for, uh, it just turns out to be the oldest house in the valley. So everything about the sag in that roof was important. Mm-hmm. Everything about the moss on those cedar shingles was important. So, uh, so that that shape ends up becoming really, really important in the painting. It's not just a house; it's that house. It's the oldest house in that valley. So, what can I tell you? It's like the lines of my dad's hands, right, and the smashed nails, or the lines in someone's face. That's a portrait, you know. And yeah. trying to capture the essence of how that was different, even than that barn, that unusual barn which you could see through on the one side of it, you know? So, mm. but anyway, if you scroll up, we can take it, I'll take you through some other things. Well, let me point, about, let me point out one yeah. thing before we scroll up. You talked about the uniqueness of the barn and how every angle's different and unique to that barn. But one thing I also want to point out was that the way you handled the grass and the weeds and whatnot here, as compared to, whoops, compared to this one, for example, mm-hmm. um, and this one. Um, yeah, and it goes to missions, what you were yeah. saying before, where is that you are not painting the same strokes in every painting. It's like, this grass needs to be done this way, and the grass on right. the other painting needs to be done that way. There's not just this formulaic approach. and It's just... You never know what you're going to get with your paintings, which is so awesome. Well, the thing awesome. is to try not not to repeat a shape or an angle if I can help it. Yeah. Unless unless it's a, a real conscious choice, you know. I, I just and I go, how do I get you know that thing uh, from from that time, you know? All right. So where you said you want me to go up? Where where? Yeah, just go up. I'll tell you. I'll just keep scrolling. I'll tell you. Okay. Find some things that are main to what we're talking about here do you want me to hop up a little high faster or all right let's see uh let's see go back a little bit back down back, back down sorry i should say down okay all right so here's one if you scroll here come come back the other way go up one two see this one sabrina basin yeah all right so again i'd never painted in the sierras before okay I was up there with my buddy Cosby as one of those big campers. So we camped up at, I don't know, 10,000 feet or whatever it was. And uh, it was 30 degrees outside, you know, and Mm. 90 degrees on the valley floor. And I'm painting a fleeting effect here. This is first light, right? So I've got to nail what's going on. I, I know the foreground is in shadow. So after a while, after a lot of years of studying that, you look at the local color of that thing. And even once the sun starts to move across the valley, I go, if it's that gray stone that's in there, is it moving towards the green because it's picking up sky or whatever? So that when I go in there, I'm able to remember even as the sun changes, because what I'm really after is the uniqueness of the light hitting those hills in the back and that variety of shape and the color back there. And again, I thank Osborne because, you know, he taught me how to paint a a fleeting light effect, you know, from life. So is this one, two sittings? This is two sittings. And then, like I said, a little sewing up inside. 
So what are those two settings like? Are you using a fast drying white or are you going wet into wet? I use lead white, which is fast drying all by itself. Okay. And if I want extra drying, I can whip in, um, uh, it's called gel and dry, made by Senier. Senier. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's uh, then it dries super fast. But with the, with the traditional lead white, my paintings yeah. are dry by the time I pack them to go home. But are they dry from day one to day two, though? On the second day, are you working they, on dry they, paint? They start to tack up, and some in some cases they do dry. So I've had to learn to paint wet and wet and wet over dry. And which do you prefer because, on these multi-day paintings? Well, wet and wet is always wonderful if you can do it. But, okay. you know, you have a window. And like I've been painting on these little Italian paintings the last few days in my studio and I don't have air conditioning and it's 90 degrees, mm. you know, in three hours, the lead white starting to harden on my palate. So if you, you prefer, know, throw... oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. If you prefer wet into wet, why lead white? Why not because titanium white? Lead white is, lead white is semi-transparent and it's so beautiful. Okay. The effects that I can get with lead white, the light bounces through it and back out again. Mm. You know, uh, the problem with titanium, it's like painting with Crest toothpaste. Mm. It's got that chalky opacity to it, which I don't like. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the answer. Yeah. I appreciate that. Okay. All right. Let's just look at a couple more. We're actually over 90 minutes, but this is too good. It, all right. See, this is the one I was telling you about. Okay. This was a okay. demo for a class and it was 90 degrees. I was standing on the side of the, of a busy road. The wind was blowing like hell. And I thought this is the time to do a demo, uh, an underpainting for all the darks. And what I did was I designed that painting. The clouds were just drifting all over the landscape. And I'm like, okay, what do I want to do here? And I got it, you know, a careful, you know, as careful as I could with the <laughs> easel banging around. And yeah. people talking behind me, you know how it is when you're trying to demo and people are talking about what they had for dinner the night before. And um, uh, and then I said, OK, I'm going to show you with an underpainting how to freeze an effective light. And uh, I blocked in all the shadow shapes and I had all my drawing, left all the light areas open and I put color back into the shadow and then put color back into the light. So that's an example of learning to freeze an effect from life. That's the reason I, I mentioned it. Yeah, that's amazing. I Yeah, that would intimidate the heck out of me with, with all the clouds, you know, the sparse kind of broken clouds moving around. Well, I, I said to the group, look, this can go one of two ways, you know, but I want to try it for you. Hmm. If I can, you know. This, uh, I wish I knew where the painting was that's on your Instagram that is a place that you said you drive by occasionally um but it's it, this is similar to it but it's a little stream kind of under the road and then there's oh, a train scroll uh, keep, yeah keep scrolling up there okay. you go uh, oh keep i love going. that one too okay i love that one too i like that painting yeah just keep going you'll see it uh let's see It'll, you'll see oh, here there it is, it is. Yeah. okay so what i noticed about this one on your instagram was how much you well i'm not gonna say it wasn't just warmed up you you really took liberties with the color and yet you still captured the place, which I think is exactly what you were explaining earlier to my question about what's more important, picture or place. 
like you nailed it on this one. It's like it still feels like that place, but the picture. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I honestly, I painted the color pretty honestly. Well, the photo, the photo didn't look like this. Well, the photo's awful. The photo's all blown out. Yeah. And okay. Okay. So, right? so this, so is, this the is the way it really looks. This is painted from life. Yeah. And so what happened is it was this culvert, this old culvert from the 1880s in there. Uh, and rarely, you know, was there a train parked up there? I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And there was this skanky standing water in there. It was awful, but the color was awesome. Hmm. I'm like, this color, this water in com, you know, in concert with those oranges and they're just beautiful. Hmm. So I'm like, I've got to do this, you know, uh, almost lost my cookies painting that grim of falling rock on the right, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it all worked out eventually. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna ask you about that because I tried a landscape with a bunch of rock like that, and it was a lot. It, that's a lot to organize. Well, you know what it comes down to? You've got to break it down. It's like doing a forest interior. You've got upright shadow, under plane shadow, mm -hmm. top plane in the shadow. And and if you vary that too much, you start painting portraits of rocks, you're really in trouble. Mm. You know, you got to realize that they're a collective shape. They're a single shape. That grouping is a single shape. And then and this... there's actually a volume to that single shape. Yeah. And then this train car mm -hmm. is unbelievably precise. The drawing skills. Yeah, well, you know what? Thank God that. it sat still. I think I spent four days working on this. Uh, you can tell that took a lot of work. I can't imagine. Uh, it but the, the good news is, you know, I got my shadows in place right away. Mm -hmm. Right, because the picture is, you know, it's more light than it is shadow, and yeah. what you know, and I actually was able to get all that color in. There was this beautiful luminescence to the limestone that was stacked above that culvert there. Uh, this orangey, beautiful orangey note, um, and the other stuff was very gray. I don't know whether they put a scrim of concrete over it or whatever. But again, I'm always trying to get to the essence of those things. If you scroll up, uh, there's one more, oh, uh, man, this one. And now cool. that's a terrible image. I wish you, I, I got to get that image changed. The painting itself is in the studio here. It's much more impactful. Is this but, in New Jersey? Where is this? You no, know, this is, this I did, you know, as soon as COVID hit, that everybody was quarantined, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I thought of that quote hanging over my door from Rilke. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, what can I see two blocks away from my building? No and kidding. I walk every day. I try to walk four or five miles a day. And I was bringing a little sketchbook with me. And I saw this. I'm like, there's definitely a painting here. I just haven't found the composition yet. Hmm. And then when I found it, and I was so excited by that trestle shadow, the shape of that shadow was so cool. And, uh, and then rhythmically kind of moving your eye through the painting. Uh, and then trying to pick up those giant stones on the, on the uh, right-hand side. You know, they're, they're God scale. They're epic. Hmm. You know, they probably weigh thousands of pounds each. Oh, that's true. Weird. Cause that light post really, yeah. I didn't recognize the scale until I noticed that light post. Yeah. Wow. And so there's, there, so again, it all comes down to character. And if you blow up that piece, you'll see that I'm painting trees that are just starting to bud out. If I could blow it up for you, which I can't, and I, could could open up that area above the bridge, you'd see the hint of buildings through the trees. Yeah. And it's all very abstract, you know, but it's it's truthful at the same time. Hmm. You know, I'm painting what what you perceive, not what you're staring at, like we were talking about earlier. You know, I love that 
I can't decide what I like better, your urban, unpredictable subject matter or the classic mountains, valleys, streams. Mm -hmm. Like you make it all equally beautiful. It's a gift. Well, you know, I guess, you know, the way I look at it is it's equally interesting to me. Yeah. Right. And I care about those things that I'm looking at, you know. Oh, see, that man. was that was a painting. That's a painting, uh, Jeff. I walked by. I've been painting on Catalina Island for 20 years. Yeah. Okay? And that's a painting I walked by. And actually, the photo, unfortunately, the shadows are a little bit more luminous than they should be mm. uh, in the in the image or just a little bit darker. But I was so fascinated by that stacking of shapes yeah. and color and patina because, you know, uh, Avalon, the town of Avalon is very swank. But on the back side of these buildings, you see the 20s and 30s, right? You see mm -hmm. the it's like an old facade on a Western building, you know, and uh, I'm like, this is so great. This patina is totally awesome. I mean, you can't make this up and this cacophony or this, like I said, stacking of shapes and colors was just really unique and really fun to paint. And I actually, that's only an eight by 12 inch painting. And it was so complicated when I tried to draw it in with the brush, it was too half-assed. And I said, nope, wipe it out. I spent the entire first morning taking a piece of charcoal and very carefully composing that. I was wondering about and that. That looks really complex. It's super complicated. I spent three mornings on that little tiny painting. Well, it's yeah. it's worth it. Before I say goodbye, I do want to ask you one question. I ask everybody. Um, yeah. If you could give a young artist a piece of advice on how to become a working artist, what would that be? What I would say is just study honestly. That's it, it's so it's such an unglamorous, unsexy answer, and it's so true. Go out into the world and taste it and touch it and smell it. Engage all of your experiences in the dome of the experience itself. Every sense that you engage in the experience heightens the potential reception of that experience. Unplug. Don't be walking around with a damn headset on. Mm. You know, uh, connect. Connect to something, and it doesn't matter what it is. But go to nature. Get outside of yourself first. See the breadth of it, see how big it is, and then see how you fit into that. What your piece of that is, not somebody else's. That's excellent. All right. Well, you know, Joe, I wish I could talk to you all day, but I know you're probably really busy. And, uh, but it has been a huge honor to get to know you better and to, to learn from you today. I really appreciate you. Coming well, on. like I say, back back at you, man. I've really I've loved looking at your work, and I look forward to uh, to to seeing more of it. So it's a, a real pleasure and an honor for me to ha take the time and and uh, and uh, and visit with you. You know, it's always like I said, it's fun when you speak to somebody who's an artist and they have an artist's eye. Conversation is uh, you know can be a lot richer. You know, so it's about big things and small things. You know. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.